0: God, we are so thankful for this moment in time that we get to gather as your people, Lord, to rehearse the gospel and to respond to the gospel. And yet, Lord, I pray for um, just a layer of protection around our own hearts, God, that you'd protect us from the familiarity of the Christmas story that can cause our hearts to become numb to Jesus. So God, I pray that your spirit would just fall afresh upon us. Lord, would you give us a fresh perspective on the meaning and the significance of Jesus and his name, Emmanuel, God, with us? God, I pray as we celebrate and, um, Lord, glorify the birth of Jesus, God, always help us to remember that Jesus is the king. He is the Lord, and we bow before him. And so, Lord, help us to think rightly about him today, I pray, in Christ's name, amen. Well, J.R.R. Tolkien uh, the author of The Lord of the Rings often used a storytelling device he called a eucatastrophe. Now, a catastrophe is an unexpected evil, but Tolkien added the Greek's prefix, ou, or eu, meaning good, to express the unexpected appearance of goodness. He defined it as the sudden happy turn in a story which pierces you with a joy that brings you to tears. It's a feeling of sudden relief, as if a major limb out of joint had suddenly snapped back. Now, repeatedly in his stories, the catastrophe occurs just as all hope appears to be lost. And for you completely sold out Lord of the Rings fans, you'll remember he uses this oftentimes in like the most heated moments. If you remember uh, the, the riders of Rohan uh, arrive at the battle, I don't even know if I said that right, but uh, or the eagles who swoop in for the rescue. Or Gandalf the White, who appears with the breaking of the day. Those are some of the most important scenes in this series. And he uses that storytelling device to allow the goodness to shine through. Now, to use Tolkien's language, the, the incarnation of Jesus Christ is the greatest eucatastrophe of all time. Like every year during Advent, as we look at the arrival of Jesus, we are reminded that even in the bleakest of circumstances, God is still at work. God is still on the move. God has not forgotten his people and that his goodness is about to shine through. That if you remember your Old Testament history, there is a 400 year gap of silence from the last Old Testament book of Malachi to the birth of Jesus. 400 years of like nothing, nothing recorded about God speaking to his people. Like imagine being God's people during that time. Like imagine the, the kind of questions that, that you must've wondered to yourself or maybe you said out loud. Like has God forgotten about us? Has God forgotten his promises? What, what about this Messiah that all of our forefathers have been talking about? That they were in a period of, of waiting and yet all hope seemed to have been lost. Now, the reason why we're studying Advent again this year is because those questions, God, where are you? God, have you forgotten your promises? God, why are you silent? You've asked those questions to God. I've asked those questions to God. And so it's really important for us to not only like, look at the birth of Jesus, which we will, but for us to, to look at a people, at God's people, and, and figure out what do we do when we're in the waiting. What do we do when we feel like God is silence, when, when we feel like we've been forgotten by God? And so this is just a phenomenal example of, of God's faithfulness, of God's goodness, and really a gospel-centered catastrophe. So look, I don't know where the Christmas season finds you today. I don't know if you're in a season of life in which you're struggling to have hope. I don't know if you've been given some bad news as of late, maybe from a doctor or maybe from an employer. Or maybe the holidays are just a particularly difficult season for you where you're reminded of some family drama or relationship uh, tension, and, and the holidays have a way of just highlighting the discord. Maybe the holidays is tough because it just exposes your loneliness or shows you of the life that you never really had. And so maybe today you're in need of seeing Jesus afresh. Well, the Advent season reminds us that especially in those times, God meets us there. And and I love that about the gospel. Like, God is always there for us. And yet, what I want us to see in Matthew chapter one is that God is not only there, and he's not only for us, but I want us to see the fact that God is actually with us, and God is actually near. And in fact, that's what Emmanuel really means. That's the name that is given to Jesus, God with us. And so as we look at this name of Jesus given in Matthew, 20, uh, Matthew chapter one, I want us to look at three sections in our passage today. First, we're going to look at the dilemma that Joseph and Mary found themselves in that surrounds the birth of Jesus. And then secondly, we'll look at the solution to their dilemma with the help of an angel. And then thirdly, we'll look at this great promise that is binding this story together that explains the significance of the name given to Jesus, Emmanuel. Okay, now first, a little bit of context. We're jumping into Matthew's gospel here. You need to know that throughout Matthew's accounts, he very quickly wants to establish Jesus as the king. That's a key theme in Matthew's unique perspective on the gospel. As he writes this, he wants to convince his audience that Jesus is the promised Messiah, that he is the king of kings. In fact, throughout the gospel of Matthew, he uses king or kingdom over 51 times. Different times. This is why he spends the first 16 verses on the genealogy of Jesus. He's trying to connect Jesus to King David's lineage. Again, Jesus is the king. He wants his readers to know that everything in the Old Testament was actually pointing to this baby Jesus. Now, again, as we jump into Matthew's account, it is different than the other gospel writers' account. It's much different than Luke, for example. Luke highlights the birth of Jesus through Mary's vantage points. And here in Matthew, we get to see Joseph's vantage point on the birth of Jesus. Matthew doesn't record the encounter that Mary had with the angel, where God spoke to Mary through the angel about the birth of Jesus, and how he's going to carry out his redemptive purposes and plan through the virgin birth. Matthew doesn't even include that. Matthew gets down to it and just says Mary became pregnant, by activity by the Holy Spirit, and goes on to tell us what Joseph did. Matthew doesn't include the fact that Mary spent three months with her cousin Elizabeth, the mother of John uh, the Baptist, and then return to Joseph. And Matthew also does not include the fact that Mary had a firm conviction about God's plan, about God's promises through the birth of Jesus. But now she is faced with the prospect of telling Joseph, imagine being mary for a moment like how do you how do you tell joseph this like where do you even begin like when do you tell him and and how will joseph even receive this news will will he believe her and so let's jump into the dilemma here that we see mary and joseph in in verses 18 and 19 now as we move to verses 18 and 19 undoubtedly Mary has told, Jesus, uh, has told Joseph about her encounter with an angel, as we can read in Luke's accounts. So Joseph full, uh, knows full well that Mary is pregnant and was impregnated by activity by the Holy Spirit, but Joseph now finds himself in a pickle. He's in a dilemma. And I don't want you to miss this. Like I know, I know the Matthew story of Jesus is very well known, But notice the way that Matthew begins telling the story about the king of kings. Like he begins with controversy. He begins with a dilemma. See, when you were betrothed to someone and that person was was already pregnant, was impregnated by someone not you, that, that was cause for controversy and shaming and public humiliation. And one thing that we need to understand about a betrothal, this is different than than our version of an engagement. This is much uh, more weighty here, that you could actually refer to uh, the person that you're in relationship with as husband and wife. And in order to break that off, you had to get a divorce. And in fact, you you were betrothed, the, the woman would stay in her father's house for almost a year under her father's authority, and then after that period would come and live with her husband and live in, in his home, and everybody in the community would know what was taking place as she did that. And so for Mary and Joseph, they're going through this process, and yet Mary is already pregnant. You see Joseph's dilemma here? So verse 19, it tells us what Joseph's plan is to solve this dilemma. Joseph decides to be uh, somewhat gracious to Mary and thinks to himself, you know what? I can do this one of two ways. I can do this loudly and draw the attention to the fact that I'm not in the wrong here, or... I can do this quietly because I'm a just man and because I'm a gracious man and divorce her quietly. He had every right to do that according to the Jewish law. But what you and I need to understand this morning is that Joseph's dilemma was not the fact that his wife may or may not have been unfaithful. His dilemma was not, how do I divorce her? But Joseph's dilemma here is, will he believe in what God told Mary about his redemptive purposes through the virgin birth? And if he believes that, will he stay true to Mary? See, that's his dilemma here. He's already been told about what God told Mary through the angel. He's already aware of that. What Joseph is wrestling with, what his dilemma is, is, is it worth it to be obedient to God even when you receive social and cultural and public humiliation? Will he be obedient to the Lord when it costs him something, when it is unpopular? Now, he's right in the middle of this controversial dilemma. And this is is how Matthew begins. Now, why? Like, why would Matthew begin this way with this type of perspective? Well, it's because of Matthew's audience. His audience is predominantly Jewish And if you've read any of the gospels before, you know that the Jewish people are constantly trying to hijack the mission of Jesus away from the cross and they're trying to get Jesus the Messiah to reinstitute a King David's kingdom over the Roman uh, Empire. They're wanting comfort and not the way of the cross. And so Matthew begins this way, puts and highlights Joseph's dilemma here because he wants his readers to know that this is what following Jesus is all about. That he's putting us, the readers, the the people who are studying this today in the shoes of Joseph here, and he wants us to ask us the same question of, will we be obedient to God when it costs us something? Will we be faithful to the Lord even when it's unpopular, even if we experience some backlash from people around us? See, Joseph's dilemma is is your dilemma, it's my dilemma, because we have to wrestle with this every day that we follow Jesus. And I love the way he begins this gospel. Like, he doesn't want us to read the whole thing and be enamored with Jesus, to see the beauty of Jesus and his great teachings and his miracles and his death on the cross and the resurrection, and to to get through all of that and to conclude, yeah, Jesus was a nice guy. I'll follow him when it's convenient for me. I'll follow Jesus when when it doesn't cost me anything or when it's culturally acceptable. He doesn't want us to conclude that. What Matthew wants us to conclude, and this is why he starts this way, is following Jesus demands that you're all in. Following Jesus means that you're willing to follow him no matter what other people say. So this dilemma is our dilemma. Well, the story continues, and there's more development to what takes place here. Verse 18, we see, Joseph finding himself in a dilemma, verse 19, it seemed like he has a plan, that he's made up his mind. And yet verse 20, we see that Joseph experiences an interruption. That as Joseph was considering these things, this dilemma, he was interrupted by an angel of the Lord that appeared to him in a dream out of nowhere, providing him a solution to his problem. Now, look, this is quite remarkable. Like, an angel visiting him in a dream, giving him exactly what he needed when he needed it. And Matthew doesn't focus on the description of the angel, but focuses on the message. And I wanna point out just for a moment here, notice that God's intervention is always on time. God's never late. He's He's never early with intervening in the lives of his people. He gives to us exactly what we need when we need it. Have you ever been there before? Have you ever experienced the, the intervention of God in your life? And maybe you were wrestling with a difficult decision. Maybe you needed some type of encouragement or maybe you were wrestling with, um, with temptation and, and bam, God intervened, intervened in your life just at the right time and gave you exactly what you needed. See, sometimes we think that God's late or, or God's ignoring us or God's silent or God has forgotten about us. Even for the people of God, this 400-year gap of silence, God, God, God didn't miss his timing. God was perfect, and he was on time with intervening in Joseph's life, and he does that in our lives as well. Now, the angel does provide Joseph with the solution, and the angel does so by reassuring him that God is at work. And I believe that the solution is found in the second half of verse 20. It says, says this, that Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Look, these are the words that changed Joseph from verse 19, divorcing her quietly, to sticking by her side and believing what God had said. Now, what was it? What, what did the angel do here to help Uh, change things for Joseph? Well, two things that the angel highlights that I wanna talk about briefly. Number one, the angel talks about the agent of conception, being the Holy Spirit. And number two, the angel states the purpose of Jesus's life, okay? So first, the angel says, don't fear because Mary has been conceived through activity of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you're in a dilemma and you're wrestling with a decision to make The average person, when they're told about some type of supernatural event or or like the virgin birth here, that's not going to reassure you. Like you're probably gonna have more questions than answers. And yet that might be true. But for Joseph here, this isn't the first time that he's hearing about this. This isn't the first time that he's hearing about the virgin birth. Like Mary has already told Joseph about what God told her through the angel. And so what is the angel doing here? Well, the angel is not providing new information for Joseph to combat his fear. What the angel is doing is the angel is applying the truth that has already been said about God in order to ease his fear and to engage in spiritual warfare. See, when you think about the virgin birth in this account, don't just think supernatural events think weapon in spiritual warfare against the sin of fear and anxiety. See, so says that Joseph was, was overcome with fear. He's, he's wrestling here. Like, that, that's a spiritual battle. Like, to be filled with fear and anxiety and worry, whether culture says this or not, that's not a Christian thing to do. Like, we wage war against that. Like, to say that, man, I've got anxiety or I've got fear and to not battle against that, that's not being a Christian. And so what the angel is doing here, the angel is showing us what we are to do with the truth about God, and how do we apply that to our fear? See, the angel is telling Joseph like, look, I know this is bizarre, like I know this is crazy, like the virgin birth, I mean, have you ever, have you ever explained the virgin birth to somebody? Like if you're sharing the gospel uh, around the Christmas season, and, and you get to the, the point in the, in the gospel presentation about the virgin birth. Have you ever said to yourself, like in your mind, like, man, this is crazy. <laughs> like, this is nuts. Like, virgin birth, like, do you even have a category for that? And yet the angel here uses that piece of truth, as bizarre as that is, and the scripture's filled with all kinds of truth that's, that's not logical, in order to help Joseph overcome his fear. See, the angel is saying, look, God's at work. There's something bigger than, than public humiliation, social humiliation. And this is a great example of what you and I are to do to battle our own fear, our own anxiety with the truth about God. It doesn't make it any less easy. Okay, don't, don't hear me say that. I'm not trying to simplify fear and worry and anxiety. Those are beasts to battle. But this does make it right, that your feelings are real. They just cannot be authoritative, especially in the arena of fear. And yet, what are we to do with the virgin birth? Okay, now a safe place, I've just said, as your pastor, this is a little crazy, okay? But but what do we do with, with the virgin birth here? Like, how are we to make sense of it as it relates to the significance of the gospel? Like, if you're reading Matthew's account here, we're not even 20 verses into this thing, and he drops this bomb on us about the virgin birth. Like, do we treat the virgin birth as some sort of uh, of storage that we put in our attic, and we never talk about it. We know it's there, but we never whip it out and actually go through it. Is this random color commentary that Matthew is providing, or is this an important doctrine for us as Protestant evangelicals? Well, I just want to spend the next couple of minutes giving us five reasons why the virgin birth is important for us, because this is what will happen throughout the course of your life if you follow Jesus. This is what will happen. If you are faithful in sharing the gospel with people, especially during the Christmas season, which I encourage you to do, you will get this question asked to you. Do you really believe in the virgin birth? I mean, seriously, like, do you believe the virgin birth? And over the next couple of weeks, as you share the gospel, invite people to church, whether it's coworker, family, friend, or, or whoever it is, like, you might get asked this question, and I want you to respond with more than just saying, yeah, I believe it because the Bible says so. And look, that's, that's good. That's, that's a fine answer to say. Like that's satisfactory. But there's more to it that can bolster your position as you talk about the beauty of Jesus that can shine a light on the gospel and not just on your position believing what the Bible says. So five reasons, and I'm getting a lot of this from John Frame, who is an incredible theologian, and if you're looking for a nice stocking stuffer for Christmas, I highly recommend his theology book, The Doctrine of God. Uh, hint, hint to my wife, Lindsay, here, uh, if she's listening. Um, it's a very dense book, um, and, and you're not probably not gonna get through it in a couple of weeks. It might take you a couple of months, but uh, I commend it to you. So with that, here we go. Number one, the doctrine of Scripture. I'll run through these briefly here. The virgin birth matters because of the doctrine of Scripture. Now, what I mean by this is if scripture errs here with the virgin birth, then why should we trust its claims on anything else that it talks about, especially supernatural events like the resurrection? Like if we're gonna toss this out, then let's just toss out everything that makes us uncomfortable and all of the miracles of Jesus that we can't figure out logically, including the resurrection, right? So we need to be consistent. If we believe that this book is what it says it is, then we need to be consistent all throughout because it's all tied together. Number two, second reason, is the deity of Christ. Look, while we cannot say dogmatically that God could enter the world only through the virgin birth, but surely the incarnation is a supernatural event if it is anything. And so just to like eliminate this from the gospel message would inevitably to compromise the divine dimension of it. Okay, in other words, like If you think about this for a moment, if the son of God were to come down in the form of a baby, we would expect it to be a little bizarre. Like we would expect it to be a little bit crazy and to be in that category of a supernatural event. And so to believe in the virgin birth is to understand that for the son of God to maintain his deity, we have to believe in the virgin birth. Number three, is the humanity of Christ. This is really important for the second century uh, church fathers, that Jesus was really born. He really did become one of us. And I'm not saying that because Mary was without sin, as our Catholics believe. It's not that Mary was a fourth member of the Godhead. Like there's no basis for that in scripture, but this is important because Jesus being born of woman means that he was 100% man and 100% God, that Jesus really was tempted. Jesus really did cry. He really did laugh. He really was hungry and he he felt pain. Look, like that's really important because Jesus, as scripture goes on to say in Hebrews chapter four, that he is our great high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Now that verse means nothing if, if the virgin, per, virgin birth isn't true. And so We believe it because of the humanity of Christ. Number four is the sinlessness of Christ. If Jesus were born of two human parents, it's very difficult to conceive how he could have been exempted from Adam's guilt. Like this would have been a little arbitrary for God just to eliminate the sinful nature from Jesus and not for the rest of us, right? So the sinlessness of Christ had to be there through the virgin birth because of the activity of the Holy Spirit. And this is really essential for the gospel message to be true, that the atoning lamb of God had to be sinless, and that is vital for our salvation. So if you engage in conversations around this time, go there for your bridge to the gospel. Don't just, don't just say, it because the Bible says it, go to the gospel, especially with the sinlessness of Christ. Last year, number five, is the nature of grace. Nature of grace, like the birth of Christ, in which the initiative and the power are all from God. This is a great picture of God's saving grace in general. This teaches us that salvation is God's act, not a human, uh, not by human efforts. And so the birth of Jesus is like our new birth, which we know from John chapter three, which is all by the Holy Spirit. So it gives you a picture of the gospel as well. And then John Frame also includes this. He talks about uh, whether belief in the virgin birth is actually necessary. And he says this, he says, it is possible to be saved without believing it. Saved people aren't perfect people, but to reject the virgin birth is to reject God's word and disobedience is always serious. Further, disbelief in the virgin birth may lead to compromise in those other areas of doctrine with which it is vitally connected. So look, the, the virgin birth is, critically important for these reasons, and and there are more out there, but the one that that is so important is the virgin birth makes it possible for the uniting of Jesus being fully divine and fully human. And so I hope this is helpful for you as you engage in conversations, not to whip out these five arguments without love and grace and then walk away, but to engage in conversation in the the realm of apologetics, if you wanna call it this, but never forget to highlight the beauty of Jesus. Like That's what's going to draw people to Jesus, not your arguments. Okay, enough there, let's move on. So not only does the angel emphasize the agent of conception here, but notice the angel also talks about the purpose of Jesus's life. Again, really important to convince Joseph to overcome his fear and obey the Lord. Verse 21, we see that Jesus was born in order to save his people from their sins. Here we learn the mission of God behind this miraculous birth, that God will, will use this baby to save his people from the transgressions that separate them from God. That everything that is foreshadowed in the Old Testament will be fulfilled in Jesus. So this helped Joseph kind of understand and, and change the perspective a little bit more here. This is a good reminder for us God's mission is to save his people from the real foe in life. And so underneath all conflict, at the core of all crimes and injustices, beneath all racism and and sexual abuse, the cause of all death is the ultimate enemy, which is sin. That sin is what destroys, it's what separates, it's what tarnishes, it's what kills, and it is what damns but the son named Jesus, the, he, he changed all that. Like Jesus's name means Jehovah saves. And this birth announces that God's mission of deliverance has come to earth. And so if you, if you like remember anything today, remember this, that the, the incarnation of Jesus cannot be separated from the atonement of Jesus. Like in our culture, like always wants to separate the two. Our culture seems to have no problem talking about the birth of Jesus, like celebrating that little cute baby in the manger. And yet, when you get into the atonement, when you get into the fact that someone else had to save you, someone else had to die for your sins, that's when the culture starts to push back. Look, Matthew highlights this, and this is helpful for us to understand the context here. He highlights this because of the Jewish expectation of the Messiah. That for the Jew, they, they were expecting the Messiah to come and reinstitute King David's kingdom over the Roman Empire. They wanted their comfort. And so Matthew here reminds us that Jesus' mission for coming to earth was to forgive sins. Jesus did not come to heal some people, he did not just come to, to teach some great stories. Jesus didn't just come to to show some compassion over people. Jesus came to forgive sins. Why? Because that is our greatest need. Look, our greatest need is not money. It's not education. Our greatest need is not job security or national security or, or who's in the White House. Our greatest need is for God Almighty to look at us and say, your sins are forgiven. And look, the only way that that happens is by looking upon Jesus and knowing that this baby Jesus will grow up and he will live a sinless life, a perfect life, and he will get up on a cross and he will die in the place of sinners. Look, he, he took your death penalty for you. He, he got up on that torture tool and he paid for your sins. He absorbed the wrath of God And the Bible promises that if you look upon Jesus and you place your faith upon him, your trust upon him, not in your works, not in your church attendance, not on being on the nice list rather than the naughty list, but placing your whole life upon Jesus, the Bible promises that your sins will also be forgiven. Look friend, have you done that? Have you you really done that in your life? Fully trusted upon Jesus, not your works, not, not Jesus and your performance, but nothing but the blood and the sacrifice of Jesus, who was a baby, but grew up and died for us. This is what convinced Joseph. This was the game changer. From verse 19, I'm gonna divorce her to staying faithful to her and yet experiencing public humiliation for it. This was the solution Joseph needed. Lastly here, the third section is the promise. The promise that Matthew highlights here that that teaches us about this name that is given to Jesus. Verses 22 and 23 says this, that all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, Matthew says all of this took place to fulfill what God had predicted by the prophet And in verse 23, Matthew basically quotes word for word from Isaiah chapter seven, verse 14. Again, Matthew wants his readers to be convinced that Jesus is the promised Messiah predicted in the Old Testament. In fact, Matthew uses this formula phrase that this took place to fulfill, some type of version of that phrase, over 10 times in his gospel. He wants them to know Jesus is the real deal. Put your faith in him. Now, one commentator said it this way. He said, of this prophecy, the prophet's prediction is like a miraculous formed keyhole into which the key of Christ fits perfectly. And so, because I have a four-year-old, you can think of Cinderella and the lost slipper. Like there's only one foot that fits. There's only one key that opens this door and it's the name of Jesus. And in this prophecy of Isaiah chapter seven, verse 14, we learn about the name given to Jesus, which is Emmanuel, God with us. Now, why is Emmanuel have such significance? Why are we talking about the name of Jesus here? Well, it's because throughout the Bible, the concept of God dwelling with his people is frequent and is an important theme. Now, we see it in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter three. We see it in the Exodus, Exodus chapter 14, verse 19. We see it at Mount Sinai, Exodus 24, verse 17. We see it in the setup of the tabernacle, Exodus chapter 40, verse 34. We see it in the temple, First Kings 8. And ultimately, the beauty of heaven is that God dwells among his people forever. Revelation chapter 21, verse three says this, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people that God himself will be with them and be their God. The apostle John even starts his gospel account by saying the word Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us, that Jesus was God with us. And by his life and death, he made it possible for God to be with us forever. Listen to this. You you cannot have God and all of his benefits without being with God that Advent is important because you get God, not just his gifts and the benefits of him. A few weeks ago, my wife, Lindsay, was uh, at Target with my two girls. I've got two girls, one's four and one, is, or one's almost four, one is uh, almost one uh, years old. So if you've ever had a toddler, or if you do have a toddler, you know that going to the store is, is an adventure, right? Like for, for Ellie, she's, she's into this game uh, where she tries to put, like, different toys in our carts, like, maybe without us noticing, like, as if we wouldn't see, just so that we can, like, purchase whatever she wants, right? So what typically happens, especially at Target, is that we get to the, the, the cash-out line, the checkout line, and we've got, like, like, three or four items that we try to, like, sneak to the cashier and say, look, we're not paying for this. Like, we try to distract her or whatever, and, and she, like, forgets about it for some, some reason. But a few weeks ago, Lindsay is with the girls, and um, they have quite a, a, an experience at Target. See, Ellie really wanted this one toy. And, and Lindsay, you know, and I had her back on this when they got home, but she said, you know, we're not going to buy this toy. And Ellie loses her mind, like just gets upset, starts crying. And there's like a family behind them at the time with, with little kids. And so it's getting a little bit uncomfortable. And, and the cashier was getting a little unsettled too. And so the cashier kind of blurts out something to the effect of, well, honey, it's okay. Like, Santa's gonna come in a couple of weeks, and, and maybe you'll have some presents then. And so Ellie, like, stops crying, looks the cashier dead in the eyes, and I have to warn you, like, she's a pastor's kid, and, and in fact, if you've got kids in here, you might wanna put earmuffs on and not listen to the spoiler alert. But Ellie looks at her, or looks at the cashier, and says, Santa's not even real. <laughs> and it's just, it's a classic Ellie situation, like, Really high highs with her and you know low lows at times, but what happened in that moment is the mom who is behind Lindsay shoots Lindsay a look like what kind of parent are you like <laughs> telling your four year old that Santa is not real like and like she's like concerned that her kids you know heard what you know Ellie's bold claim of, of truth you know I mean it's, it is true I mean come on like I know I'm a pastor but uh, so here's my point that was a really fun experience for Lindsay she took one for the team but here's my point. Like, Ellie may or may not be convinced about the, the existence of Santa. Like, at this point, she doesn't believe that Santa is real, but Ellie loves all of the benefits that Santa brings her. <laughs> like, like, she loves the Christmas lights. She loves the movies about Santa. She loves the, the cookies and the gingerbread houses and, and all that stuff. Like, she's into that as long as Santa is, like, over here. Like as long as I can keep Santa at the North Pole or December 25th, like I know he's not real, but we've got this deal where I can, I can have the benefits and the gifts, but I'm not going to believe that he's actually a real person, all right? And that's, that's Ellie's understanding of Santa. Now look, many people in our culture believe the same thing about Jesus, the exact same thing. Like many people in our culture, the average person, like especially during this time, Jesus is no more than an idea. He's no more than, than a philosophical construct. Like they may or may not be uh, convinced that he's real, but they sure do love the benefits that Jesus brings them. And, and they're okay with Jesus, especially baby Jesus, because he's cute and, and my kids love him. But as long as Jesus is over there, I'm okay with Jesus. I don't want Jesus right in front of me. I don't, I don't want Jesus Emmanueling me of God being with me. No, 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 Jesus is over there and that's where I like him. Look, like, that's kind of the mindset of the Jewish people that Matthew was writing to. Like the Jewish understanding of God, especially in the old covenant, is that God's not near you. God's not with you. God's over there. There there was so much red tape through the old covenant regulations. You couldn't get near to God unless you were the high priest. And so Matthew is like dropping this, this theological bomb on them saying, look, God is with us. And that mindset assaults that line of reasoning that you can have the benefits of God without God being near. And you just can't. You can't have the the Ellie mindset of Santa Claus as it relates to Jesus, that the benefits of Jesus, his grace, his love, his salvation, his presence, only come when he is near you, ruling your life. That the advent of Jesus Christ is what sets apart Christianity from all of the other religions, that through Emmanuel, there is a new way of relating to God. It's not God over us. It's not just God for us, it's God with us. And so the beauty of Advent is rather than stumbling in the darkness between all kinds of these different forms of relating to God that invoke fear and control and exhaustion and and even uncertainty, through Jesus, Jesus like turns on the lights and gives us a new way of how how we need to relate to God. And it is with God because Emmanuel, God is not just for you, he is with you. And the incarnation did not happen just to let us know that God exists, but to let us know that God is near and that we get God, not just his gifts. Look, the gospel is about Emmanuel, that the beauty of Christmas, the beauty of Advent, and the beauty of Emmanuel is that through Jesus, we get God. God comes near to us and we enjoy not just his gifts, but we get to enjoy the Giver as Tim Keller says, that religious people find God useful, but Christians find God beautiful. And that is what Emmanuel is all about. Look over and over, we see the Bible clearly communicating one truth, and that is this, that our need is so great, our consequences are so overwhelming because of our sin, and our power is so limited that God is our only hope, that during this Christmas season and even this morning, like, like the most important truth that you will hear during this month and something that depending on what you do with it will determine your eternal destiny and it is this, that real hope and help comes through Jesus. Real hope and real help comes through Jesus. That your soul is in need of a gospel-centered catastrophe. That your hope, your, your, your soul, because of your sin, you are in need of an inbreaking of the glory of God demonstrating in the goodness of Jesus through the cross. And the beauty of following Jesus is that, like the last thing that Jesus tells his followers in Matthew 28, so Matthew bookends this whole theme. The last thing he says to his followers is, Behold, I will be with you always. And look, that's, that's true because real hope comes from God's help. Jesus. So let me challenge you during this Christmas season. I just wanna challenge you with this question. How might you practically live out Emmanuel during this Christmas season? Like, what would it look like to intentionally live out the reality that God is not just for you, but God is with you and God is near to you? He's not just over there. Like, how might you apply this idea of Emmanuel to this Christmas season that just tends to be hijacked by commercialization, to allow Emmanuel to maybe shine a light on the gospel in ways that you haven't thought before. In College Park, let us remember that during this season, the most important gift that we will receive is through the name of Jesus, that God is with us. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much for the beauty of Jesus. God, we thank you for all the names that are associated with Jesus. Yeah, we could preach all day about who Jesus is and, and what he means for us, and yet, Lord, today, we are focused on the fact that God is with us because of Jesus, and Lord, help us, Lord, not to take that for granted, that Jesus is among us, that he abides in us by the Holy Spirit, and Lord, through him, we get you, not just your gifts. So, Lord, during this Christmas season, help us to fall more in love with Jesus, to understand that this baby grew up and that he died in our place and he is the king of kings. We pray this in Christ's name.